0: Again, I mentioned a little while ago that my name is Brian Pierce, and um, my wife, Krista, and I moved here 12 years ago, 12 and a half years ago, um, to start Seven Hills Fellowship in our living room. And then we le- went to the Rome Civic Ballet. I don't know if Meredith and Jay are in here. And then we've been to the DeSoto really for about the last seven, or no, 11 years. And so if you ever stood in the foyer in the early years and had plaster fall into your coffee cup while you were talking, you know you've been around here for a little while. Anyway, glad you're here. Um, so uh, I'm not doing a new year's service or sermon. That's like, Hey, you know, eat better. Uh, don't drink as much Coke, whatever. Um, but what I am doing is I'm jumping into a book of the Bible. And so, um, what some of you, you know, who've been around here a lot, you know, know that there are times where we'll do topical sermons or we'll do sort of a little section of scripture. Um, but, but, you know, every now and then I go, Hey, it's been a while since I just preached through a book. And so a lot of times what I'll do is I'll try to Frankly, try to pick relatively less popular or obscure books of the Bible, like so maybe an Old Testament book, or in this case, um, we're going to be starting a series on Second Corinthians, and uh, and so I don't know how many of you have read Second Corinthians recently, but um, we're going to take the next probably two months and wade our way through the first half. Uh, of this letter, and just so you know, it is a letter, and it was written by the apostle Paul, um, probably in fifty five to fifty seven a d it 's probably written from Paul was probably in Ephesus at the time, and was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which he actually planted. This is not the first letter that he wrote to them and uh, and there 's any number of different uh, sort of people that have opinions on why he was writing this letter. But uh, there are a couple of reasons, at least. One of the things that this letter of 2 Corinthians addresses is this idea of worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. And in that day and age, it may have been Stoicism, uh, may may have been some sort of philosophical thought that was, you know, kind of rolling around that day and age. Um, The truth is, part of what we see in this book and we see throughout the rest of Scripture is... You know, worldly wisdom is perfectly fine in any number of ways, but ultimately it pales in comparison to the truth of God. So we'll be looking at that a bit. And then part of what Paul was doing, too, is he was writing uh, to encourage the church in Corinth because there were false teachers that were making their way in and among the church. And really um, what happens is when you have false teaching, it always leads to chaos, just like sin always leads to chaos. So we're going to be looking at this letter to the Corinthian church over the course of the next two months. Um, Before we begin, let me take a second. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us together I pray, Father, that as we um, sing hymns and songs, and as we read scripture, and as we pray, and as we confess corporately, and as we hear your word, that uh, you would strengthen our failing and feeble hearts, um, that you would bring fortitude to our minds. And Father, I even ask um, that for some of us, you would bring physical strength um, in order to live the lives that you're calling us to live as um, moms and as dads um, and as students. So, Father, I ask that you would empower us. But ultimately, Father, I pray that our strength would come from being in your presence. Um, it would come from standing beside you. So, Father, I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, back in um, college, I went to a little school up on Lookout Mountain called Covenant College, and um, I wrote my senior paper, sort of when you graduate, you have to write what is in essence a 40-page paper on some particular theme related to your major, and it's called the SIP, the Senior Integration Project, and uh, it has kept many a people from graduating on time, but uh, I decided to do my SIP, my graduation paper, on the problem of evil and suffering, and I don't know exactly how I found my way into such a morbid topic, but Uh, But it was helpful for me to sort of delve into what all these great theologians had to say about evil and suffering and where it came from and and what Scripture had to say about it, most importantly of all. And and it's interesting because a a buddy of mine at the time who now is a professor out west gave me a little book called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, which he wrote after the death of his wife, Joy. And so this theme of, you know, how do we handle as believers who believe in a good God the idea that there really is evil and suffering in the world? And uh, so, it's just a constant tension. Well, the same buddy who gave me the book, A Grief Observed, um, back in probably 1993, now teaches on staff at Whitworth, which is a school in Spokane, Washington, uh, teaches theology. One of his fellow theology professors is a man named Jerry Sitzer. And Jerry Sitzer wrote a book called A Grief Observed, and um, it's uh, basically a book that chronicles his... Uh, wading through the loss of several members of his family in 1991 before classes had resumed at Whitworth um, he and his wife and his mother and his children were all loaded up into the Ford Aero Star and uh, they had driven to a place called Plummer Idaho which was an Indian reservation and uh, and as they were driving back home from this Indian reservation with all of them you know packed into the Ford Aero Star uh, a car going 85 miles an hour coming in the opposite direction, swerved over the center lane and uh, hit the Ford Aerostar head on. It's was a drunk driver. And uh, what's interesting is um, that in that wreck, and horrifying, is that in that wreck, he lost his wife, he lost his mother, and he lost his four-year-old daughter. It's just a tragedy that's you know, hard to even believe how anybody could handle that. I'm going to read a little section of an article that was written up about this. He says this, that the road was so isolated that the Sitzer family spent more time, more than an hour there in their totaled car along the side of the road before help even arrived. Sitzer tended both the living, his sons, John and David, and his daughter, Catherine, and his dying wife, Linda, and his four-year-old daughter, Diana Jane, and his mother, Grace. Grace. He says this. He says, I remember those first moments after the accident as if everything was happening in slow motion. They're frozen into my memory with a terrible vividness. I remember the feeling of panic that struck my soul as I watched Linda, my mother, and Diana Jane all die before my eyes. I remember the pandemonium that followed people gawking, lights flashing from emergency vehicles, a helicopter whirring overhead, cars lining up, medical experts doing what they could to help. And I remember the realization sweeping over me that I would soon plunge into a darkness from which I might never again emerge as sane, normal, or a believing man. Part of what he was communicating in that moment is he was saying, this threatened to completely undo me. And in his book, A Grace Disguised, what he does is he takes us into his journey of processing with the loss of three generations of women from his life. And essentially what he says there is he says that if our suffering has no purpose, and if we're alone in it, that that suffering at best is going to make us bitter. And at worst, it threatens to destroy us. On the other hand, what he says is, that we can bear this horrible suffering. And I would argue to say, I would, you know, I would venture to argue that very few people have suffered as much as this in such an acute fashion. But he basically says, we can bear suffering as believers if we know it has a purpose and if we know we're not alone in it. In other words, we can bear this suffering, which by the way, we'll all enter into at some point in our lives, if we know that it has a purpose, that it can be used by God, and if we know we're not alone. 2 Corinthians makes that point. In verses 1 through 11, Paul begins to delve into this idea of suffering. And so we're going to look at verse 1 and read through verse 11. It'll be up on the screen, or if you want to read along, you can. So verse 1 begins by saying this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Paul's basically writing this letter, and he's saying, here's who I am. An apo- I'm an apostle, and I'm writing it along with Timothy to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace and peace uh, entrance is something that Paul uses all the time. And it basically is saying you've been given this wonderful blessing that you didn't deserve and God desires peace or shalom or wholeness for you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of all of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we've set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now that's a lot to deal with right there and we are not going to be able to cover it all, but I'm going to focus on a, a couple of different points. The first one is this, is that this book of Corinthians, as well as frankly the whole Bible, introduces us, frankly, to the idea that suffering is inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Let's look uh, very quickly at a couple of different quotes. So I mentioned C.S. Lewis's book *A Grief Observed* that I read, you know, as a I guess as a senior, junior in college. And in it, here's what C.S. Lewis says. Again, this is after the loss of his wife Joy to cancer. He says this, we were promised sufferings, and he's talking about believers, Christians here. We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it's different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others, and in reality, not in imagination. Here, what C.S. Lewis is saying there, he's saying, suffering is inevitable. I knew it theoretically. I knew it was coming. I knew it was part of the deal. But all of a sudden, now that it's real in my life, it's much different. In fact, in the book, he talks about how his uh, faith went from being a thick rope to being a spider's web. It looked almost invisible to him. Helen Keller, another person who was familiar with suffering, said this, We bereaved are not alone. We belong to the largest company in all the world, the company of those who have known suffering. Again, suffering is just inevitable. Now throughout these 11 verses Paul uses two different words for suffering and he uses them a total of 8 different times one of the words pathama from which we get the word pathos which in this context means evil or calamity that has to be born or carried so just let that sink in for a moment that definition evil or calamity that has to be born or carried you can't just cover it up you can't sort of bury it somewhere. You can't just get rid of it. It has to be born and carried. The other word that's used, it's actually translated affliction in this passage, but same idea, is a Greek word, phlipsis, which is translated affliction. It's related to the process of crushing grapes for wine. And so it means to be crushed, like being crushed in a a wine press. And so that could have happened in different ways. But imagine, you know, California and the wine Country, they throw all these grapes into this, um, you know, big vat, and then people, five or six people, get in there and they 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 stomp on these grapes, right? Or if you think of an olive press, they would have thrown these olives in a press, and these giant stones would have ground these olives into a pulp to get the juice out. Either way, what's being communicated in this is essentially Paul is saying that's what suffering feels like sometimes. And so, when you view the two words together, there's an implication. One that we are going to suffer, that you are going to suffer, it's going to feel like being crushed. It's going to feel like being ground to a pulp. And that pain, that suffering, has to be borne. It has to be carried. Dr. Sitzer, the author of the book A Grace Disguise that I mentioned at the beginning, said this. He says, I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life like soil receives decaying matter until it became part of who i am that makes sense some of you in this room are intimately acquainted with suffering i know very well um, at least a little bit of the stories that you have experienced of suffering you, you know the crushing weight maybe of physical sickness or the crushing weight of emotional pain, having lost a loved one to cancer, maybe lost a loved one to divorce. You've absorbed your loss and suffering, and it's become a part of who you are. In this passage of Scripture, God sees your suffering, right? He acknowledges it. And others of you in this room haven't suffered much yet. You're still young. But unfortunately, it's only a matter of time. Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment wrote this. He said, Suffering is part and parcel of extensive intelligence and a feeling heart. In other words, your consciousness and your morality are going to dictate that you suffer in life. It's inevitable, right? The good news, however, is that though suffering is inevitable, the next thing that we see in this passage is that we can bear that suffering. If we know that it actually isn't meaningless, but has a purpose, there's a quote by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian uh, psychiatrist. He survived the Holocaust, so he's um, he's got the credibility to make this statement. He says this. He says if we have on our own, if if we have our own why in life, we shall get along with almost any how. Solzhenitsyn, who wrote the Gulag Archipelago and was also spent years in the Gulag Archipelago, said the same thing. He said it was the Christians actually, believe it or not, in these camps, whether they were in concentration camps or in the gulags, that were able to survive precisely because they had a why, right? They they knew their suffering had a purpose. They knew their life had meaning. Now, what's interesting is in this passage, there are several whys. So one of the first things is it says that we suffer so that we can comfort others who suffer. That's verse four. Uh, In verse five, it says we suffer so that we can be comforted by God. Verse six says, we suffer so that others may be saved. And so there are any number of different whys in this passage. And if if I were teaching this in a Sunday school class or in a small group, what we would do is we would delve into each of those. But in reality, we just don't have time because this is a sermon. We can't delve into all of those whys. And so I'm just going to draw your attention to one of the whys. And one of the whys is found in verses eight and nine. And it says this, Paul says, we suffer so that we can see the reality of our own hearts. And so suffering exposes the reality of our internal worlds. Verses eight and nine say this, for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, right? That's... The buoyancy right that 's the the meaning and the purpose. I often look back at the naivete um, or ignorance or arrogance of my youth, and i 'm often ashamed i couldn 't see it then, but my mantra would have essentially been, "Hey, if everybody would just respond to life like I respond to life you 'd be a lot happier and healthier right you 'd be great." <laughs> And uh, unfortunately, in our naivete, we often respond to all sorts of things that way. In what could be described as zeal without knowledge, I would have told people to trust God and obey him no matter what, right? And I would have just said it with a big smile on my face or, or feigned concern maybe. What I didn't realize then is that when you're 20 or when you're 22 or even when you're 25 and you come from a good home with parents who love each other, and you have good genetics, and you're relatively emotionally and maybe even academically intelligent, and maybe you're a decent athlete, it's really, really easy to believe that you're trusting in God when in reality, you hardly have to trust him at all because actually all your trust is placed in those things that he's given you. Does that make sense? You really, you really just haven't been tested that much yet, and your trust is in all those things he's given you. What suffering does, however, is reveals or exposes the reality of our hearts. So when you're an athlete and you tear your ACL, is it still as easy to believe that God is good? Is it still as easy to believe that God loves you? If you've lived in relative health and all of a sudden you're afflicted with cancer or diabetes or some sort of autoimmune disorder, do you still trust that God is good, that he's for you, that he loves you? When you're in a good family and that family is shattered by divorce or shattered by death or maybe there's a child who's a black sleep, do you still, sheep, do you still believe that God is for you? Again, suffering reveals to us the reality of our hearts and how we respond to suffering either drives us to bitterness or it drives us to numb our pain or how we choose to respond to suffering leads us to humbly Trusting in God, which is what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9. J.I. Packer, Anglican theologian, has this to say about suffering, and he is into his 90s now, so my guess is he's got some data to back this up, but he says this. He says, God uses chronic pain. That's that idea of the wine press, of being ground into a pulp. He uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. He uses it as a chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually, even while our bodies waste away. In just a couple of chapters, Paul's going to talk about this idea of, um, of being jars of clay. And my guess is that he understood exactly what he was talking about, because 2,000 years ago, when you got a toothache, you just got your tooth pulled out, you know what I mean? And when your shoulder got messed up because you're doing hard work, you just had to live with it. And my guess is it didn't take long for your body to feel like a jar of clay. Packer goes on to say, to live with your thorn uncomplainingly, that is, sweet, patient, and free in heart to love and help others, even though every day you feel weak, that's true sanctification. It is true healing for the spirit. It is a supreme victory of grace. Now, here's what's interesting. Jerry Sitzer lost his wife, his daughter, his mother in this horrible car accident. It says that suffering is a grace disguised. J.I. Packer, well into his 90s, says suffering is a supreme victory of grace. What in the world? Part of what they realize is that if suffering isn't meaningless, then we can actually bear it because it's actually creating something wonderful in us. It's hard to believe, but I think it's true. So this passage tells us that suffering is inevitable. It says we can bear it if we know it has a purpose, and that purpose is to make us beautiful. And then finally, the third thing we see in this passage is that we can bear suffering if we know that we're not alone, right? If we know we're not alone, verses three and four blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by god there's a reason why small children want their parents to sit by their bed when they're afraid right because we want to be comforted in our suffering we don't want to be alone there's a reason why those same small children want their parents to rub their foreheads when they're sick, because when we're suffering, we don't want to be alone. There's a reason that from one culture to the next, from one era to the next around the world, those who are grieving are surrounded by friends and family and their sorrow. We can bear the weight of suffering if we know that we're not alone in our pain. Many of you saw the movie Inside Out that came out, I don't know, seven, eight years ago now. And uh, it paints a great picture of this truth. So Riley is this little girl who's the central character in the movie. She's a preteen, and her parents move from the Midwest to San Francisco, so they move you know hours and hours away from all of her friends and all of those things. She's been uprooted, physically, relationally, and emotionally. And the movie describes the inner world of her personified emotions. And so there's joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And the upheaval of her inner world is pictured, you know, through the lenses of these characters. One of the casualties of her suffering and upheaval is that her imaginary uh, friend Bing Bong sort of gets forgotten. That's Bing Bong right there, the elephant, if you've seen the movie. And so in Bing Bong's turmoil, um, he's forgotten, and he's suffering, and he's crying, and there's this scenery sitting on the edge of this abyss, and what's interesting is joy, comes over and tries to cheer Bing Bong up, and it just doesn't work. But then Sadness, this little blue character, um, comes and sits down with Bing Bong as he cries. She doesn't try to cheer him up. She doesn't try to minimize his sadness or his suffering. She just sits with him. She lets him be sad, and she's sad too, right? She just doesn't let him be alone in his sadness, if you think back to verses three and four for a moment, remember that the word translated to fiction is related to that wine press. So it can literally kind of almost be I mean you get ground to a pulp. And many of us in this room can identify. You probably feel ground to a pulp, some of you this morning, or you can remember back to a time in your life where you felt ground to a pulp. Maybe this morning you feel like life has just sort of wrung you out. Maybe it's tread repeatedly upon your heart. Maybe the suffering and the affliction of your life has just thinned you out emotionally, so you're just thin. And maybe you're worn out physically. Some of you this morning feel like you just can't take any more at all. But into our pain, we're reminded that we're not alone. Verse 3, in verse 3, Paul calls God the Father of mercies. And the word translated mercies is oiktermos, which means compassion. And that means to enter into someone else's pain so much so that it becomes that it becomes your own pain. Right? That's that's what it means that God is the God of mercies. It can also mean to groan with someone else, right? Again, because if if your pain becomes their pain becomes your pain, then when you feel it, you're gonna groan like they groan. The implication here is that God enters into your pain, our pain, in order to be with us, and he groans with you as if your pain was his pain. It's a pretty powerful picture of the God of the universe entering into your life to suffer with you, to groan with you. And then it's interesting as Paul goes on to call God another name, and he calls him the God of all comfort. And that word, which is translated comfort as paraclesis, so that's related to per Kaleo, or which is the name we give the Holy Spirit, and that means the comforter, or even the defense attorney. And what it means is that God not only enters into your pain, so much so that it becomes his own pain and that he groans with you, but also that he comes alongside of you to offer you courage and to offer you strength in the midst of your pain. The God of all comfort, the Father of mercies. Immense and seemingly endless theological discussions have been and are being had on this topic. If God is loving, why does he allow suffering? If God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he prevent evil and suffering? Many people rightfully ask, rightfully ask these questions, and many people then assume, well, God just doesn't care, right? Whatever it is, he just doesn't care. Either he's not loving or either he's not all-powerful, but at best, he just doesn't care, Right? That's the assumption they make, but I don't actually think God allows that argument to go unchecked because God entered into suffering with us. He entered into humanity as a human being. He breathed real oxygen. He experienced skin, knees and stomach aches as a child, and he experienced splinters and the pain of hitting his thumb with a hammer as a teenager working in the carpentry shop as an apprentice under his father. Jesus experienced social rejection by his friends. He was the target of slander and gossip. And ultimately, of course, he experienced the affliction of the cross. So we may not know why suffering exists, but we can know that God cares because he has entered into our suffering with us so that we're not alone in our pain, in our suffering, in our affliction. And he's entered into our suffering so that he can groan with us and comfort us. This morning, as you look around the room, you see tables. And on this side of the room, there are tables with bread and wine. On that side of the room, there are tables with bread and grape juice. And this bread and wine represent certain truths that Jesus actually wants you to remember. That's why he established the Lord's Supper is to remind you of true things because we forget. And so the true things he wants you to remember are that you're forgiven, right? That if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, you're forgiven, That's huge. That you're not only forgiven, but that your record is perfect because it isn't your record that matters. It's Jesus' record, which has been applied to you. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that God isn't angry with you. That's what this meal reminds us of. But the Lord's Supper is also a reminder that Jesus not only suffered for you on the cross, that he suffered with you as well. That's what this meal represents. So before I invite you up to take this meal of bread and wine, let me just ask you to take a moment and I want you to feel the weight of God suffering with you. I want you to take a moment and feel the weight of Jesus entering into humanity in order to suffer for you on the cross to pay the price for your sins, but also the weight of him suffering with you. This meal is not for everyone, but it is for those who trust in Christ alone. And so for those of you who trust in Christ alone, I invite you to come to this table and to feel the weight of God's love and forgiveness for you. For those of you who aren't to that point yet, I don't mean to at all call you out, but I would invite you to sit back and I would invite you to watch the people of God as they experience the grace and the mercy of God our Father. Let me read the words of institution and then I'll pray. And I'll invite you to take your time before you come up and receive the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that not only um, in this letter to the Corinthian church, Father, that we're reminded that you enter into our suffering um, with us, to groan with us, to comfort us. But even in this meal, Father, of bread and wine, we're reminded of the suffering of your son, Jesus, that he suffered on the cross and he suffered um, the wrath that was really wrath that should have been for us, Uh, Father, in order that he might ultimately comfort us. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us to come to the table this morning and that we would receive all the things that this meal is declaring, that we would be strengthened, that we would be reminded of the forgiveness we've been offered, that we would be reminded that you're no longer mad at us. Um, There's no anger, no fury. Uh, but rather, Father, in this meal, you declare that you love us and that you care for us. And again, that you remind us that you entered into our suffering with us. We pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.